Our reading this morning is uh, from the last three chapters of Judges, 19, 20, and 21. 1,007 words, or 172, no, 107 verses, I should say. So the big question that's been bothering me all week is, do I read all of it? Which is the instinct of a reformed preacher, so to do. Or would that take away some of the punchlines of this, this section if you knew them ahead of time? I'm assuming you don't read this very often. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the introductory part, verse 19, and then you'll have to keep close notice out the pages and the text as we proceed uh, from there. So let's put it in its context then. This is the last section of Judges. We don't know what, when, whether the period described is a period in the middle of the period of the Judges or prior to the period of the Judges or after the period of the Judges. We don't really know what particular era this is. Um, but the divine author has prompted the human author to put it here in order that we might learn from this overview of the state of the church of Israel at this time. Therefore, it begins in chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning or sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was angry with him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant, servant, and two donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came to him with joy to meet him. The father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with them three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they rose early in the morning, and he prepared to go, but the girl's father said to the son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. When the man rose up to go, the father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. The girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the days wane towards evening. Please, spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and set your, let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning in your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He arose and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. We're going to stop there. Things 
fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. These words written by William Butler Yeats in his poem, The Second Coming, written at the end of World War I, predicts that the time is up for humanity, that civilization as we know it is about to be undone. They're suitable for the introduction to these three last chapters of this book, for we see the undoing of a civilization. And it's interesting how it's presented to us in these last chapters as they recount a comedy of horrors whereby the Church of Israel spirals downwards while God is apparently silent. In fact, the very narration of the events demonstrates what happens when God's people live like there isn't a God. In this conclusion to the book, we find particularly women uh, being treated as if they're invisible, as if they don't matter, and they become victims of betrayal and rape and murder, while those who are ostensibly ministers become manipulators and deceivers. And anger and violence and atrocity lead to the near eradication of an entire Israelite tribe. And the big lesson really is that where it is unacknowledged and unaddressed, corporate sin, that is, sin within the body of the church, will soon be uncontrolled and uncontrollable. Now, this is a narrative, and we'll treat it that way. I'm not going to have any fancy points. We'll just follow the story as it develops. It begins with this Levite. This Levite is not the same Levite we've already encountered in chapter 18. That Levite was a priest. Even though he worshipped the God of Israel and foreign gods at the same time, he was a bad priest. He was even an apostate priest. He was a priest nonetheless. This Levite, however, has never taken the position of a priest. He has no wife. He has no wives. He only has a concubine. And a concubine, in biblical terms, is a female slave. She's taken on to perform household duties, which may be domestic or sexual or both. As such, as a slave, this woman would have no rights, such as a full wife would have. The concubine's status would be uncertain and would be precarious. In the Bible, there are no good stories about concubines. They are all dark as you would imagine, if someone exists only to titillate or to serve their master. 
Her presence in the narrative sets the scene for the whole story to to the end of of the book. This concubine is no better than her master's plaything at his beck and call. In the story, she is not named. She is not defended. She is not valued. She is not loved. Her story begins when she runs away from her master. The Septuagint version, that's the Greek version, says that she left in anger. There is no suggestion at all in the text of sexual sin. She runs home to her father, and uh, going back to her father would not have been the normal recourse of someone who was, innocent, uh, who was guilty. Rather, running back to her father is an indication that this is an innocent or wronged daughter going back to her father for protection. This was always the understanding right from the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis, when God creates man and woman and gives them to one another, male and female, into marriage, God says the man, the man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. In other words, the wife is to be uh, at least near her parents or her brothers or whatever for her protection. The husband is to be the lever and the cleaver in that sense. So that's a little bit of background. Of course, to the Levite, from the Levite's perspective, her running away would be shameful in that culture and countercultural. Perhaps in his mind, it was evidence of unfaithfulness. She'd run away, and he was saying that Actually, the story doesn't call for her either being innocent or guilty. Uh, But there's no basis at all for any suggestion of her guilt. The, The narrator doesn't make simplistic links. He's he's telling a very complex story, and you need to know up front that the purpose of this story is not to just to reveal the, the histor- historical events as they unfolded, it is actually meant to be received by you and I as the hearers and readers of the story uh, as an investigation of or exposure of our attitudes and our heart as it tells us the story of the characters originally in the story. So the woman leaving is revolutionary for a man in a patriarchal society. And we read the story as it unfolds. After four months, four months go by. After four months, he goes looking for his concubine that he might, quote, speak to her heart. That just means talk to her all friendly like that kind of thing. He takes a servant with him. He takes two donkeys, one for himself and one for her. The attitude of the concubine's father indicates that there was no serious issue involved here. He comes out very warmly, welcomes him. The reason she left him in the first place is never addressed. 
But the text, by telling us she was a concubine, has immediately inclined us to be sympathetic towards her. And as the story progresses, we will find that our hunch is, is not wrong. Then follows a series of events that cover five days. Uh, the jolly host, the father of the, the woman, makes his guest remain day after day after day to eat with him. And every day the guest gets up, gets ready to leave with the concubine, and the father pleads with him to stay, tells him there's a lot of food, even more food than yesterday, and drink. Why doesn't he stay? And he stays. Next day, there's even more food. He presses him to stay. You don't really want to leave today. The next day, he presses him to stay, and there's even more food and drink till it's well into the evening, and he's merry in his heart, and so on, until the fifth day. Day after day, the feasting goes on. Now, we don't know why the father does this. Does he have a motive in doing this? Does he want to keep his daughter where she's safe as long as he can? Well, we don't know. Although, if he knew what was going to happen, he would never have let her go. One day's visit then turns into five days. And then, on the fifth day, they set out. But the father has kept them so long into the day. It's now late, late afternoon. It's getting dusk. Soon it will be dark. And they have a long way to go. And they find themselves, just as it's getting dark, near Jebus, better known as Jerusalem. It was occupied then by the Jebusites. The, the, the Levite does not want to go into the city. He doesn't want to spend the night in the Canaanite city because it's dangerous. That's the kind of idea that was going around. It's dangerous to mix with the Canaanites. You don't want to be there late at night. You can almost hear that being said in Scottish towns as parts of Glasgow. You wouldn't want to be there late at night uh, for the reasons Glaswegians alone know. Well, he doesn't want to stay there. So they press on. They press on to Israelite territory. That's far more safe for them to be in Israelite territory, the territory of the Benjamites. They get there, and uh, they bump into this man, who, funnily enough, comes from the Ephraimite hills where the Levite lives. The old man, he takes them to his home, he feeds the donkeys, the travelers wash their feet, and they enjoy a meal. Now, as you hear them talking, the, the Levite isn't really straight with his guest. He kind of pretends he is something he's not. He, he pretends, for example, that he's from Ephraim. He's from Ephraim. He doesn't say, oh, I was a sojourner in Ephraim. I didn't really belong. Didn't have, I, I wasn't a citizen of Ephraim. He doesn't tell him that. Also, he tells the man in verse 18 that he's going to the house of the Lord when he gets back, giving the impression, being a Levite, giving the impression that he's actually an ordained priest, which a, a, a Levite may very well be, but which he is very much not. But he gives the impression that he is. He wants the other person to think he's important. 
I, I suppose priests were important in those days. They're not today, but they were important then. So he wants his host to think, oh, this is a worthy man. But if you listen very carefully to what he says, you see he's not as selfless and worthy as he makes out. He starts by saying, we are traveling. He ends by saying, but no one has taken me in and made them into their house. He also introduces his concubine with an expression, ama, which refers to a slave woman. So not only does concubine mean slave, he uses a word that specifically means a slave. By calling her that, he intends to put her down. He intends to humiliate her and to stress her otherness. She's not one of us. She's, a, she's strange. She's different. She doesn't belong here. He's also saying, by calling her that, she doesn't mean much to me. And we'll see how little she meant to him. So the guests enter the old man's house where they wash their feet, they eat and drink. All the verbs, by the way, are in the masculine singular. The concubine, the woman, doesn't count. She's invisible. That's essential to the unfolding drama of the story. So there you have the concubine and the Levite. And then in verse 22 to 26, some wicked men come with their demands. A crowd of men surround the house. They're called the sons of Belial or Belial. It's an expression used in Hebrew to describe extremely wicked men. Uh, it's been used of various other kinds of people in the scripture. For example, Israelites who go into idolatry are called sons of Belial. In 1 Samuel 2, it's used of the priest Eli's sons who misuse their status as priests for material gain and for sexual favors. The very use of the expression flags up danger, danger. And the danger begins to unfold. They come to the old man's door. They knock the door. They demand that he send out the male guest that is staying with him for them to have their way with him. The old man is shocked at the disgrace of this happening. Instead, he says, you can't do it. This man is a guest. The man is a guest in my house. But I have a young daughter, you can have her, and he has a concubine, you could have her. You can have these two women, but only don't take the man. That's his argument, this old man. That's his argument. To do it to the man would be an outrage, but it's perfectly acceptable to use my young daughter and his slave. He makes the point twice in the text, underscoring the relative value in his mind of women and men. Now, we are Christian readers. We come to a story like this. We come to that, this point in the story and we think what a contrast there is between the thinking of a New Testament person and the thinking of this man. In the New Testament, the husband 
should be ready to lay down his life for his wife. This old man knows exactly what these men will do to the women that he's offering. In fact, he uses the biblical word closest to our word, rape. He uses the biblical word that is closest to that in the Hebrew. In other words, he knows what's going to happen. He doesn't doubt that his offer will be acceptable to them, that it will also be acceptable to the Levite. The Levite would rather give his concubine than be taken out himself to these wicked men. Now, what worries me? What worries me is this. As I read 20th century evangelical commentaries, I find them at this point defending the old man's offer by claiming that it was a point of honor. Some of them go on to say this, that homosexual rape is taboo in that society, but heterosexual rape is acceptable in that society. These sons of Belial were out to abuse someone, anyone, They were not picky. They would have taken either. There are parallels between this story, of course, and Genesis 19, the story of the gang rape in Sodom. In both occasions, there's sexual violence. In both occasions, there is an arrogance, an entitlement. Those yobos on the streets of Gibeah felt entitled to have their fulfillment as they wanted to have it. One way or another, they were arrogant. And in Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 9, talking about the events of Sodom, it says this, their arrogant heirs bear witness against them. They parade their sin like Sodom to their own undoing. They do not hide it, and they're preparing their own downfall. Or in Ezekiel 16, 49, the crime of your sister Sodom was pride, arrogance. Such were the sins of Sodom. They never helped the poor and the needy. They were proud and engaged in filthy practices in front of me, says the Lord. These jobos had no respect to the poor and the needy, in this case, to the young girl and to the concubine. When we read what follows, we must know there's a subtlety that prevents simplistic moralizing. The behavior of these men, whether it's the enablers, the old man and the Levite, or the perpetrators, these sons of Belial, both reveal a pervasive indecency within Israelite society. It's the church, by the way, of the the day. While the discussion between the Yobs and the old man goes on, the Levite is listening from behind the safety of the door in the house. The first action we discover of the one inside, that is the Levite, is in verse 25 when he grabs, seizes the concubine, opens the door and hurls her out into the street, closes the door behind him. 
and the worthless men set about their business. It says, And they knew her and abused her all night until morning, and as dawn began to break, they let her go. Another comment on modern expositors. What's disturbing to me is the clamor with which this action is either defended or excused. With this language, it is normal in the Old Testament for men to use their wives to save their own skin. References to Abraham and to Isaac. The divine author indicates his take on the Levites' actions. In verse 25, he is simply the man. In verse 26, he is her master. He had never, he had never been anything else to this woman than her master. The door is shut. The Levite The old man and the old man's daughter all retire to bed. Meanwhile, the text has several time markers in the narrative that that are used by the divine author and by the human author to stretch out the narrative, the power of the narrative, all night until morning. As dawn began to break... As morning appeared, until it was light in the morning, stressing what? She had to endure all night this terrible abuse from this gang of thugs. All night long. And in the morning, the Levite gets up from bed, puts his clothes on, gathers his things together, prepares to leave. He wants to leave as early as he can so he doesn't bump into those jobs. He opens the door to to get on his donkey, and there lying by the door is the concubine. She's collapsed. Her hand stretched out towards the door, perhaps to knock the door or to reach for the handle. What does he say? What does he do? He barks his orders. Get up. Get up. Let's go now. No attempt to comfort her. No getting down to tend to her needs. No even asking her how she is. And when out of exhaustion she does not respond, he lifts her up, puts her on his donkey, and off he goes till he gets home. And when he gets home, he grabs her again, the same word that's used for him throwing her out to the mob. But this time, this time, it's to inflict violence upon this woman. It's he who kills her in his own home and her own home. Even her own home is not safe for her. Her own master slays her. 
He prevents her burial. He sends out her body parts to be seen in all Israel. There is not one iota of respect shown to this woman in life or in death. The desecration of her body, the prevention of burial among her own people. The Levite uses her in death as he has used her in life. She's a piece of meat, either for his own pleasure or, in this case now, to make a point. He sends the pieces throughout Israel. Chapter 20. All Israel gathers to find out the reason that there are body parts being circulated around the tribes of Israel. So they all come together to get an explanation. And when the Levite gets up to give an explanation, he plays the role of the victim. He doesn't mention that it was he who threw her to the rapist or that he didn't defend her from the rapist. He doesn't mention that he killed her. Instead, he uses these body parts, a kind of object lesson of how wicked these men of Benjamin were. He doesn't clarify it was a group of men within Benjamin. That will come later. He claims the high moral ground. He had this trouble to face when he went into Benjamin territory. And everyone in Israel is gaslighted by the body parts against the tribe of Benjamin. So Israel's army then goes up against the tribe of Benjamin at Gibeah. And they ask them, what is this evil you've committed? Give up the men, the Gibeonite sons of Belial, so that we may execute them and purge this evil from Israel. And there are three great battles that take place in chapter 21. In chapter 20. Battle number one. Israel is defeated and humiliated. Benjaminites, no losses. Battle number two. Israel is defeated and humiliated again. Again, no losses for the Benjamites. Battle number three. Israel uh, traps the Benjamin by Benjaminites by luring them out and then chasing them and then ordering an absolute slaughter of everyone. They slaughter the Benjaminites, including all women of marriageable age. These chapters reveal what happens when people turn from God. A society becomes brutal. Women become objectified and invisible and life becomes expendable. Well, there's a problem. The problem is that only 600 Benjaminite men survive the slaughter, the unrelenting slaughter that eliminates the women, as I said, of Benjamin. So now there are no marriageable age women for this 600 Benjaminites. And they come up with this notion. They they say to themselves, look, eh, that was a bit over the top. Um, 
You know, there's supposed to be 12 tribes in Israel. There's hardly anybody else left now of Benjamin. What are we going to do? I mean, it's a matter of, a matter of uh, history and, and, and so forth that we should have 12 tribes in Israel. We've got to help them then get restarted. So how do we do that? How do we do that? So that's the discussion of chapter 21. They come up with a, an irrational oath. They go to Mizpah, one of the worship centers, and they make an oath that they will never again give their daughters in marriage to anybody from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. They say they're making the oath in the Lord's name. The Lord, of course, has nothing to do with the oath, but they do it in the Lord's name, so he gets the blame. They reinforce it by uttering a curse. Cursed is anyone who offers their daughter in marriage to somebody from the tribe of Benjamin. So they make the oath first, and then the big question pops into their skull. Well, how is the tribe of Benjamin going to survive? So in verses 8 to 14, after they've made their irrational oath, they come up with an evil strategy. They use a kind of pedantic interpretation of their own oath. The oath said, give your daughter. We will, you, we'll only punish one another if we give our daughter to marriage to somebody from the tribe of Benjamin. But suppose, suppose we set it up that people from the tribe of Benjamin could take our daughters. Oh, well, this has seemed like a bright and good idea to these people. It's terrible. But they said, we, we don't want to be guilty about this. So what we really need then is to, we need to find somebody who's not here. So they identified that there were people from Jabesh Gilead who were no-shows at their great assembly. And, and without any delay, without any opportunity to ask them why they weren't there, they sent out a little army and they turned on their own people. The Jabesh Gilead people were fellow Israelites, but they committed an act of genocide on them. And after the slaughter was over, there were only 400 virgins found who were elected, as it were, to survive. Now, lots of questions come into your mind. How did they choose? What age were these girls? Were their parents questioned? Were the girls given some crude physical examinations? All kinds of questions. The Benjamin Knight men are presented with this, these 400 child survivors. And then they encountered another problem. There's actually not just 400 Benjaminite men looking for wives. There's another 200. Where are they going to come from? So then they come up with a festal solution. Every year, there was a, a Yahweh festival that took place in Shiloh, which was the spiritual center of Israel. And at that festival, the girls of the city would go through the vineyards dressed up in holiday gear, dancing uh, in the vineyards. And so the leaders of Israel 
suggested to these 200 Benjaminite men that if they lay in wait while the girls were dancing through the vineyards, they could snatch one and take it away very very quickly. We don't want to find you uh, after you've snatched them. Just snatch them, take them away, get out of town very quickly. This was their plan. There are seven verbs used to describe what they did as the story is told. They did as they were told, number one. They carried off the women, number two. Who they'd seized, number three. They went on their way, number four. They returned to their land, number five. They rebuilt their cities, number six. And there they lived with them. Now, what have the elders of Israel done? You remember this beginning of the story? Here's a concubine. And she's in danger and she runs, she runs away from her home for safety to her father. That was the theory going right back to Genesis. What has Israel's leaders done here? They have put these young girls, for girls they were, where their fathers could not protect them. They've put these girls in the place of the concubine in harm's way. The place where the Levite put them, or the old man wishing to throw out his daughter. The the elders willingly sacrificed these women, put them where their fathers and brothers cannot come to their rescue. In other words, evil has officially been sanctioned. Violence against women is endemic now. It's socially acceptable now in Israel. It's become institutionalized and justified within Israel. And women have been slowly erased from public, private spaces in the church of Israel. The future seems bleak. Now you say that, that, that all that doesn't apply today. Doesn't that apply today? There are churches and there are groups of churches in America where women are treated as if they're invisible. When they have no contribution to make. Where their voices are never heard. I'm not talking about preaching from a pulpit like this. I'm talking in, in the life of the church where together as a body of Christ we, we work things through together, submitting to one another out of love, listening to each other within the body of Christ. I mean, that should be going on all the time between us. But God has a bigger plan. There are two particular sites that are mentioned in these chapters that are of great significance to us. One is the town of Bethlehem in Judea, from whence the concubine came. The other is Shiloh, this worship place. <clears throat> in, the, uh, in the Greek version of the Bible... The book of Judges is followed by the book of Ruth. 
In the Hebrew Bible, the book of Judges is followed by the book of First Samuel. And what immediately strikes you as you read chapter 1, and as you read the whole book of Ruth, chapter 1 of First Samuel, is the contrast. Both of those books focus on women. Both of those books have women speaking in direct contradiction to what's going on here at the end of Judges. In fact, both of those books will take up a significant space in the history of Israel that prepare us for the coming of the Savior. In the town of Bethlehem, a pagan girl, Ruth, finds God for herself. She becomes the grandmother of David and a great forebear of Jesus himself. At Shiloh, Hannah, who was barren and went there to pray, is given a miracle, and she has a child, and she's going to have other children after him. That child is Samson, Samuel, rather, and she brings Samuel back to the temple and offers him to the Lord. And Hannah sings a song, a song of joy to God for this miracle that's been done, and that song of joy is in the Bible. And that song of joy is echoed down through the ages. It's echoed by another girl who will live in Bethlehem of Judea, who gets a message from an angel and who responds to that message from the angel by creating her own song, the Magnificat. And she draws from the language of Hannah, who lives in the time of the judges. And that voice resounds across the world. The song of Hannah, the song of Mary, the story of Ruth resound across the world. As does the voice of an adulterous woman who came to Jesus, accused by men of committing adultery. She was guilty. Jesus says to her, where are your, cat? Where are your uh, assailants? She said, they've gone. He says to her, neither do I condemn thee. A woman of Samaria who was a, a pagan woman or, or worshipped in, uh, in another form of religion, uh, uh, she meets Jesus Christ at the well and Jesus talks to her about the Holy Trinity. He hadn't even talked to those disciples about the Holy Trinity at that point. There's Martha, who believes that Jesus can raise the dead. There's Mary who knows Jesus is going to be crucified and who prepares him for his burial. There's another Mary who goes to the disciples and tells them, the Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. And in the hymns and prayers and in the interactions and conversations... And in the decision-making of God's church today, men and women who are all one in Christ Jesus, there is no male, no female, no bond, nor slave, nor Jew, nor Gentile, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. We're not good at it, by the way. 
We get it wrong very often. We don't, uh, we don't self-criticize ourselves enough. But the Word of God has taken us a long way from the book of Judges. And there's a ways to go. But with the help of the Holy Spirit of God, let's go there. As together, all together, we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Let's pray. Oh Lord, that's a very heavy piece of work this morning. And yet the lessons that draws out for our own times are just so powerful. Lord, we pray that we look at each other instead of following the inventions of our mind. It's so concerning that the statistics show that Christians, as much as non-Christians, are into porn today. Oh, porn changes your brain. It changes the way you think. It certainly changes the way you look at the other sex. Lord, we pray that you would free someone in this room this morning who's addicted to porn, free them from that addiction. That we may look into each other's eyes, that we may see each other as people, that we would listen to one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And that together we would hear the word of God as has been proclaimed this morning, as the word of God to us, and help us to live accordingly in Jesus' strong name. Amen.